Well, looking at leadership and it being Pentecost Sunday, the day that the Holy Spirit was poured out on all who believe in Jesus. And because the last week we had passages uh, and verses such as 1 Timothy 3.1, any man desires, anyone wants to be an overseer, they must be the husband of one wife. There's a lot of language about male leadership, and yet we have female leadership in our church. Maybe that causes issues. We've had people that have come into the church and to visit, go to a classroom that seemed appropriate to who they were and their age, and it was being taught by a woman. Nay, my ears shall not hear the teaching of a woman. Send me to another class. And we said, okay, that's fine. Here's a better class for you. But I don't think they ever came back. Uh, And that's fine. Everybody has their different understandings and where they are and in their growth in, in the Lord. And it's understandable with the, the, the clear, just base reading of our English translations and the culture that we live in. As much as we want to complain about new translations and the ways that they are changing things, we've got to recognize that the translations we have grown up with were impacted by the cultures they were written in. And even our understanding of theology and God, to a certain extent, is influenced by the culture, specifically the Western European culture that America was founded out of. Uh, Not every culture in the world operates like ours does. Ours hasn't always operated that way either. And uh, what I would like to look at today is this idea of leading ladies. Now, you could take that two different ways. You could take it as, how do you lead women? Or you could take it as women who lead. And that truly is the way I intend it. We have in our church women who lead, women who teach uh, co-ed classes, not just the ladies, not just children. But also, when I went to develop a strategic leadership team, which in all intents and purposes was to serve as elders, not officially, but in that capacity of helping to guide the church spiritually. Which direction should we go? What are the things we should be doing? How do we communicate to the world around us and and to our own selves what it is that we are about so we can keep focus? Uh, Two of the people I asked were women. And I've been extremely blessed. Oh my word, how many errors I would make in my life had I not listened to them. And yet we have passages about women should not have any authority over men, women should not teach. And yet, I'm sure most of us have had experiences. And we've had, you've probably had experiences of bad women teaching or bad teaching from women. I've had experiences of bad teaching from men, too. I've seen women who were teaching who should not have been teaching. I've seen men who were teaching who should not have been teaching. But I've also been blessed to be taught by women, to have women give me advice and even guidance and to submit myself to them. I'm reminded of a story my mom told me. Back in the 70s, the uh, military academies were turned from male only to co-ed. And one of the young cadets that was coming in, they asked him, do you think you can take orders from a woman? And he said, yes, 
I've been doing it all my life. It wasn't going to be a problem for him as it was for some of the older ones. But maybe you wonder why, if there's such clear language in Scripture, why would we go against Scripture? And my answer is I don't believe we are going against Scripture. And sometimes very clear language is very dangerous language. For instance, there's very clear language that if your hand offends you, you should cut it off. Anybody cut off their hands this week? I guarantee you your hand offended you this week. Anybody's eye offended you ever? Yet I don't see the plucked out blind people walking in the church. We all seem to have read this clear language and yet not acted on it as it was written. Maybe we have wisdom after all. For me, the, 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 and, and trust me, this has been a struggle I've been working on for at least 19 years. Ever since I went to seminary and I was in the EMDiv program and you got in groups and you talked about why you were there and there was a woman in my group. I thought, what's she doing here? EMDiv is for pastors. And we went around the circle and why are you here? And she said, I felt God's call to become a pastor. And I thought, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know that was allowed. See, because I came from Texas, where it wasn't, it was most definitely not allowed. And I came from the Bible church environment where my uncle was a pastor and where I went to church as a college student. And it definitely didn't happen in that environment. And yet, at this school, this evangelical conservative Baptist school, there was a woman in my group and she was taking an MDiv course. And not only that, but her reasoning was the same as mine. I feel God's calling to be a pastor. If anything, if I can be honest, I think she had a stronger calling than I did. Because I never had a voice say, David, give up your life, become a pastor. I just felt a strong desire that if I did anything else, I wasn't going to be doing right. But I always kind of wondered, did I have enough of a calling? Was it good enough? I never had people come up and confirm to me and say, David, I feel like you should become a pastor. Nobody ever said that to me. And so I remember sitting there thinking, she might have a stronger claim on this than I do. Because she had people in her life that told her they thought she should be. And for all I knew, if you wanted to claim that she was wrong, if you wanted to claim that she was mistaken, well, you'd have to be able to say to me that I was mistaken too. At the time, maybe I was. I was kind of nervous about that. So I wasn't willing to, to go down that road with her. And over the three years of seminary, I found out that there were women who were wise and there were women who could teach. There were women that could preach circles around me. And they seemed to be gifted by the Holy Spirit for it. And that, that put me in a conundrum. So I spent years, and I have continued to spend years, and I continue to study it, but I finally got to the point where I felt that what was more important, my understanding of what the Scripture said or what the Holy Spirit seemed to be doing. It, it kind of reminds me of uh, Acts chapter 11 when Peter comes back from, from sharing the Gospel with the Gentiles and the church is upset. The men of the circumcision are like, what are you doing? You went and ate with a Gentile? What are, what are you talking about? 
And he explained to them the vision that he had. And he explained to them how he went to the house. And he explained to them how the Holy Spirit came upon the Gentiles. And I love the response of the Christians because they're like, huh, I guess God's given the Holy Spirit to Gentiles now. I mean, whoa, what's going on here? They, they just accept it. Well, this is out of our understanding. It's out of our understanding of Scripture, but we see the Holy Spirit moving. And that is where I come from, is, is that uh, right here in Acts chapter 2, what we looked at earlier in verses 1-4 through in the reading during the songs, but Peter, when he gets up to talk, he tells them the very same thing in verse 16. He says, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And to prophesy meant to to proclaim the Word of God. To proclaim it. They will prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even Even on my bond slaves, both men and women... I will in those days pour forth of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. What we get into the difficult spot of doing if we're going to say no, only certain people can do a certain job, is we put limits on the Holy Spirit. Now you can say, well, God would not call a woman to do something that He has not declared that she should be able to do. But what we do is we put limits on the Holy Spirit and what He is able to do. And therefore, and then we get to the point where any woman that feels God has called her and gifted her to do something, we we say that apparently that is sinful for her where it's not sinful for a man. That's dangerous territory. What does that tell us about Deborah? What does that tell us about a litany of women that we will look at in Romans in just a few minutes? The the, the question to me is, which is more important? A focus on the flesh or a focus on the Spirit? Throughout Scripture, what's more important? What What does God say to Samuel? You look on the outside, I look on the inside. What does Paul say? That you are of the circumcision of the, of the flesh. That has nothing for you. That is no value. What we are is the circumcision of the heart. That there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, free nor slave, but we are all one in Christ. So for, for, for God who continu- continually says, you look on the outside, and to look on the outside is the wrong thing. I look on the inside, and the inside is what counts. And to say that the, the physical, specifically circumcision, and we all know where circumcision happens, is of no use for true righteousness, but what happens through the Spirit is. For us then to say, but... If you don't have that piece that can get circumcised, whether you get it circumcised or not, it's entirely relevant to the Holy Spirit, but you must have that piece if you're going to lead. And that's what really matters. Do you see how twisted that is? That we would focus solely on the external and say that God has limited His Holy Spirit to only working in half the body of Christ to teach us something. That God has limited himself to only working in half of the body of Christ to give us guidance spiritually. We focus instead of on the flesh, we focus on the spirit. 
not the flesh. The reason why I've asked women to lead and and why we are open to women teaching is because what matters more is the Spirit's gifting in a person's life than what they were born with, you might say. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 8. We see it in Romans too, where Paul talks about there are many different uh, gifts, it's one spirit, and here he says it in verse 4 as well, chapter 12. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. And then in verse 11 he says, But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. And again, I suppose we could get to the point where we say, well, God has limited Himself He has decided only to to give certain things to certain people. But then when you have somebody that stands up and says, God's done this, and then you have other people in their lives who say, you know, we've witnessed God working through this person. They are a leader. And then to say, yeah, but they don't count because they're a woman. That's dangerous territory. To say, God, we're all misunderstanding the Holy Spirit's work here. The Holy Spirit doesn't work that way. That's dangerous. Leadership is not, there's no reason to listen to a person just because they're a man. Right? There's nothing about me being a man that says, oh, you should listen to me right now. The reason we should listen is based on the truth of what somebody's saying. You can completely not like somebody, and Proverbs even tells us this, that that sometimes the wounds of your enemy are going to help you grow in wisdom. You might not like that person. That person might be the last person you want to listen to. But if they're telling you the truth, you need to listen. It doesn't matter who they are. It matters what they're bringing. Leadership is based on gifting, not gender. Leadership is based on, has the Holy Spirit called this person? Has the Holy Spirit gifted this person? Do we as a congregation recognize that in that person? Just because somebody's a man doesn't mean they're a gifted leader. That might not be their calling. That might not be their role. But so often we want to limit God, don't we? So often I, I find myself doing this where, you know, there are certain types of people I think are leader material. Usually they're the ones that I've been following most of my life. So of course they would seem to be leadership material, you know. And then the Lord surprises you by saying, here's a person that has a lot of tech, uh, the, the qualities that we saw in 1 Timothy 3. And they don't fit into your mold, David. And then I'll meet somebody who fits into my mold and they don't have those leadership qualities. And to have them in a leadership role is a disastrous thing. 
a lot of times we can look at this and say, well, this is just an outshoot, you know, this whole women in leadership kind of question. This is just feminism in our country running amok. And to a certain extent, yeah, you're right. A lot of the, 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 the major push is coming from that. But what we forget is that there were powers in place prior to the feminist movie of the 20th century that has already... Uh, affected how we read things and how we understand and even the translations we use. It's an interesting thing to go through older translations and see how they translated 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 that we're going to be looking at. And how recently the translation changed to be a focus on authority. But if we go through Scripture, we can see that this idea it was not new to Paul and to the New Testament authors. You have 2 John, which was written to a woman about the church that she was over. You have in Romans chapter 16 a, a litany of welcomings to different people that he, Paul is writing to in Rome. He begins in Romans 16 chapter, uh, verse 1, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. Phoebe was most likely the person bringing the letter to Rome who is a servant of the church which is at Sincrea. Now why did they translate that servant when elsewhere that word, whenever it's attached to a man, is translated deacon? It's the same word, but what happened was 20th century students and scholars said, hmm, can't use that deacon word. A woman's involved. Let's just call her a servant. But... Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is at Sincrea, who is a deacon of the church, which is at Sincrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a worthy manner of the, in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. Welcome her in a manner worthy of the saints, second verse says. Phoebe is a servant and is a deacon in the church of St. Crea. We, 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 we reduce it to servant for her, but then later on it'll be this person's a deacon. Why? Why are we afraid that maybe she had a role in this church? And that's why she, among all the people in that church, Paul trusted to take this letter to Rome, which is an amazing thing in itself. In verse 3, greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. Now, the funny thing is, if you go back to Acts, when Priscilla and Aquila are first introduced, Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla. And they work as tent makers together, and he stays with them at their house. And whenever we're just talking about them as a relationship, or we're talking about them in their house, it's Aquila and Priscilla. But whenever Paul or Luke, as the author of Acts, writes about this couple, this married couple, in relation to ministry or teaching, for instance, they were the ones that taught Apollos, Priscilla is put first. And that's not an accident. That's because within their relationship, she took the primary in teaching. We see this with Paul and Barnabas. We're going to be looking at Barnabas when we, uh, in July, in, in June and July. I'm going to, we're going to go through Barnabas' life. But in the, chat, in, in the book of Acts, when God calls Paul and Barnabas to the first missionary journey, 
God doesn't call Paul and Barnabas. God calls Barnabas and Saul. And Barnabas and Saul head out. And Barnabas and Saul go. It isn't until Saul takes the leadership role of speaking primarily that the next time they go, then Saul, who was also called Paul, and Barnabas went. Luke makes a flip as soon as Saul takes over, you might say, in primary leadership roles. He's the one who goes first. Barnabas is with him. But prior to that, we forget, Barnabas was the one the church trusted. Barnabas was the one with seniority. Saul was the one that Barnabas said, come on, come do this work with me, Saul. But as they were in the mission journey, Saul took primary leadership and their names were flipped. So when we are first introduced to uh, Aquila and Priscilla, that's only natural. But as they worked with Paul, as they served with Paul, Priscilla and Aquila became the introduction. Greek Prissa and Aquila. Later on in verse 6, we're introduced to uh, Greek Mary, who has worked hard for you. Verse 7, Greet Adronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Now, Junius oftentimes is translated as a masculine. But Junia was a woman. And Paul says she is outstanding among the apostles. Does that mean that among, you know, just they all like her? Or does that mean that of the apostles, and she could even be counted as one of them, she is outstanding among them with Andronicus. And they were both, Paul says, they were, they were in Christ before me. They outdate me. They have been with Christ and walking with Him longer than I have. This is who he writes to. Finally, in verse 12, greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Two more women who, uh, who he wants to greet and give them greet. Now, there were, there were men involved in here too. The reason why I'm skipping over them is because we recognize them automatically. I'm trying to point out the fact that within Paul's writing and in this letter to the Romans, he mentions a lot of women, and they're not just helping make sure that drinks are filled. They're not just teaching the kids. These are women that he has worked with and suffered with and strived for the Lord with, and he values them as equals in the Lord. Fellow workers. That's what he's saying. And so within this context of Scripture and of Paul's interactions with men and women, that then we come to 1 Timothy and remember last week we talked about the fact that 1 Timothy, a big portion of why Timothy was left in Ephesus was to deal with false teachers. And within this context of how Paul served and of, of, of God's work, I'm not even bringing into the fact that Mary was the first apostle to bring the good news of Jesus' resurrection to the men, the disciples. Within this work, we come to a passage like 1 Timothy chapter 2 and talking about how the church should get along and how the church should work together. By the time we get to verse 11, we read, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man 
but to remain quiet. Now, I don't know about you, but that strikes me as strangely out of sync with Paul's other writings and with his attitude in general and with Scripture's attitude in general and, and with, with God's work. I mean, we're, talk, we're, we're ignoring the fact that there were uh, you know, the four daughters of Philip who, who were prophetesses and we've got Deborah and we've got Esther who works her, her magic with the king. That there are times when God has called on women to serve and even to lead. I think of uh, Abigail with David and her wisdom over her foolish husband, Naboth. Not only that, we see throughout Scripture that women who, who begin Scripture uh, with the Levitical law is, is practically property. With very few rights, but actually more rights than the world around them. That a woman, as a, as a daughter in her father's house, uh, if she made a vow, it wasn't binding. Her dad could release her from it. A man's vow... And notice that a son's vows aren't talked about, a daughter's vows. But a man's vows were binding. And then when she got married and she went from her father's home to her husband's home, her vow could still be broken by her husband. She was always underneath. And yet we see movement and growth in Scripture and a, a care for women to the point where they are fellow workers. Where they are able, you know, you got Mary and, and Mar uh, Martha, and Martha's upset, and Mary's not helping me, Jesus. And Jesus says, Mary's in a better place than you are. She's learning from me. She's sitting here with me. Why don't, you, why don't you not do all this? Let it go. We just need something simple. And you come listen too. And here we see this instruction that sounds like women are not allowed to ever teach a man, and women are never allowed to have any kind of authority over a man, but instead, women are supposed to be quiet, to remain quiet. Does that seem in keeping with the Holy Spirit's work in the church? Does that seem in keeping with the freedom of, that God gives us, that he sets us free, that, that, that what really counts is what the Holy Spirit is doing inside of us, not our external physical nature. It's interesting, isn't it? And that's why I think we should not limit God's spirit or his authority. And here's the thing, people talk about authority here, and if your focus is on authority, you're already on poisonous, dangerous ground. Because scripture doesn't talk about a pastor having authority. Scripture doesn't talk about guardians having authority or deacons having authority. The only time really that Paul talks about authority, he talks about it in two major ways. One is 1 Corinthians chapter 7 when he talks about a man does not have authority over his own body, but his wife has authority over his body. And likewise, the woman doesn't have authority over her own body, but her husband has authority over her own body. He uses authority and that's equal. You notice how equal it is? That it's not just a man has authority over his wife's body, she has authority over her husband's body. A humongous change from Leviticus. Humongous change. What is Paul talking about? Women have authority over a man's body? Give me a break. No, he says it. And the only other time he talks about authority, he talks about the fact that God has given him authority with the Corinthian church, and he's trying to correct them in their, their, their faultiness. And he says, he didn't give it to me 
for your destruction, but for your, your blessing, for your betterment, your improvement. Those are the only two times he ever talks about authority. Now, we're told to obey those, in a, those and see, I'm even trying to say it wrong, and that's a poor translation. We're told to obey those who are, have oversight over us. We're told to submit, but, but it's never said they have authority. Anytime you ever hear somebody talk about the pastor has authority, dangerous, very careful with that. Don't go with it. If I have any authority... It is only if I read and proclaim this rightly. Just because you've called me to be a pastor does not mean I have the right to say and do anything I like. I don't have authority. If I have authority to pay bills, it's only because the church has given me it. I don't have it just because I'm a man, because I'm in the position. The church has said, you're going to do this. If the church got together and said, you know what, we don't want the pastor paying the bills, we're going to have a committee do that, that would be the way it would work. And I would be able to say, I'm sorry, I can't do anything. I'm here for only one purpose. I can't pay the bills. And for the most part, I really don't. We have an ministry assistant that does that. Thank the Lord. But whenever people start talking about authority, we're already walking the wrong way. And so those that are worried that, oh, well, a woman can't have authority. Well, guess what? Men don't have authority either. Women are called upon even in the family. What is it? Submit to your husband. Place yourself under him. Submit. Big difference between submit and I've got authority. You've got to do what I say. So, so if God is, and it is truly, it's God who has the authority. All, what did Jesus say? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. So go therefore. So don't worry about those who are going to attack you. Don't worry about those who are going to malign you. Don't worry about those who are going to resist you. I've got all authority. He didn't say, I'm giving it to these men. No, he just said, I've got authority. Go and do. God is the one who has authority. The Holy Spirit is the one who has authority. We do not. What's he really getting at here because did you know this word authority it's the only time this word shows up in the new testament it's the only time and outside of the bible in, in scriptural writings it's in the greek bible for uh, one word in the wisdom of solomon and one word out of three maccabees books we don't even include in our bible And neither of those two times is it talking about authority. So what is Paul doing here? Well, if, if you were to remember, he's writing in regards to false teaching. And he's dealing with men who are false teachers and, and probably women who are false teachers too. We know of men because he kicked a couple men. He said, hey, I've given them over to Satan. And, and then he talks about how men should behave in the church, how, how he wants us to pray. And then he talks about women and how they should adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls and costly. Where is he getting at? Is it wrong for you to dress up in a nice dress? Is that bad? Are you, are you wrong to wear earrings? What's wrong here? What he's getting at is that he is writing about and dealing with the cult of Artemis, which was powerful in the city of Ephesus. If we go back to Acts, you might remember that there was a riot for hours because the silversmiths were angry at Paul because their business was being affected by his ministry. Remember, great is Artemis of Ephesus. 
Great as Artemis of Ephesus. Well, when women went to worship Artemis, they put gold braid in their hair. They dressed up very nicely. And the cult of Artemis, they, the belief was that uh, Artemis would not be a consort with a, king, a, 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 a god or demigods of, of those levels. So she came to earth and got herself a man. And so she had authority over that man. And not only that, they believed that if you prayed to Artemis, who was Diana of the Romans and, and, and was a hunter, and she was the goddess of the hunt, and so people would, uh, hunters would abstain from uh, relations prior to going on the hunt in the hopes that they could entreat Artemis to give them favor. And not only that, but Artemis was believed to be the goddess of fertility and childbirth. And so you would pray to Artemis and hope for safety when you gave birth. And they are in the hotbed, the center, the, the epicenter of this Artemis worship in Ephesus. And so he says to them, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, now this exercise authority, the word has the sense of by my hand. It's used in three Maccabees to talk about people who commit murder. They did it with their own hands. It's oftentimes in Greek language used for suicide, but they did it with their own hand. And so a better understanding of it, and even that goes back closer to previous translations than our more modern translations, would be the understanding, and also the fact that it's teach then authority. Usually it would be I don't allow her to have authority. Oh, and not even teaching. But instead it's teaching, which is a smaller thing, to authority, which is a bigger thing. A better understanding of it would be something along the lines of, I do not permit, I do not allow a woman to teach in order to exercise, in order to dominate. But instead, she should remain quiet. And that word quiet is calm, peaceful, gentle. And then he gets into this Adam business. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. Now, some people take that and say, see, Adam was always on top. Eve was always number two. Men have leadership and authority overall. But remember, Artemis took a male consort, a human. She had primary over the male. Paul isn't saying, no, that a, 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 an eternal truth is that men are always number one and women are always number two. He's just refuting the cult of Artemis that views women as the uh, the first, and he says, no, remember in Scripture, it was Adam who was created first, and then Eve. And it wasn't Adam who was deceived, but the women, woman being deceived fell into transgression. And, and, and before we say, see, that's why women should never lead, because they can be deceived so easily, because they're women. Remember that Adam wasn't deceived. At least Eve was deceived. How terrible is it that we would say, no, we would much rather people who willfully commit sin than those who are deceived into sin lead us. We want to go down that road. That is a bad road to go down. Let's not go down that road. Instead, what he is saying is, look, because the cult of Artemis would say that men are the ones that are deceived. Men are the problem. Women 
And it sounds almost like a modern-day feminism, doesn't it? You know, men are the problem. Men are always deceived. Men are idiots. Only women have the wisdom because women are, you know, what do we, if you take God out of the picture, what are we left with? Mother Earth. So he's refuting, not with a pro-male view, but just refuting the pro-female view that was driving some, possibly some women in the church. Remember in First. Timothy chapter 5, he talked about these widows that were going around talking about things they shouldn't talk about. He's dealing with false teaching in the church. And then he says in verse 15, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. You know, there are some people that honestly think that women's salvation comes through childbirth. And that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is, is that the cult of Artemis had such a, a, a stranglehold that for women to give up that cult and to follow Jesus, they were afraid of childbirth. What will happen? Will Artemis still protect me? And he's saying, you know what? You don't have to rely on Artemis. Women will be preserved through the bearing of the children. Continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Don't go after this pagan idea. Walk with Christ. That's what he's truly getting at. Is, is he's fighting the false teaching that's going on. He's not saying and declaring, and, and I mean, we go and we, we read into things. We read into the text. Like 1 Timothy chapter 3, we, we read into that the Bible says only men can be. The Baptist Faith and Message 2000 says that the, the office of senior pastor was reserved for men. Where does, that, where does that come from in here? We infer it. We do not receive it. We infer it. And that's dangerous when we infer something and then turn it around as if we received it. But this, this, this call for women to be quiet, it's not just here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Uh, we see a similar thing in verse 34. Earlier in 1 Corinthians um, 14, we, we hear about women needing to have their heads covered because a man's the head of the woman, and we're not, we don't have time to deal with every single passage. But again, I don't see anybody who's got their head covered in here, ladies. So obviously we're not obeying that law of Scripture. Men... Why aren't your wives' heads covered as a sign of your authority over her? Maybe because we know that's not what that text is saying. But in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34, the women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. Law never says that. That's an interesting thing that he says. You can't find the text that he quotes. What's he really getting at? He says in verse 35, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now, that is clear. So ladies, when the service is over, don't talk until you're outside. And we can't have women come up and read Scripture. I don't even know if they should be singing because they're not supposed to speak. It's improper for a woman to speak in church. Is that really what Paul's saying? 
Is that really what the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write? What's really going on here? You know, we have a very much a one-way conversation going on when I preach. It's the way I grew up. I've never been in a church for very long where the pastor uh, received recommendations or affirmation or any kind of a dialogue. And so when people want to add to whatever it is I'm saying, it throws me off. They're fine, they're okay, but it just throws me off because it wasn't what I grew up with. But if you remember when Brian was here, he kind of missed that. We would talk about it. He says, you know, there's no give and take. And so some people were good enough to give him every now and then a little bit of encouragement, but he, got, he had to learn how we do things. But I've been in churches where you, you got to make sure you pause. You can't move on to your next sentence because there's going to be encouragement. There's going to be a give and take with the congregation. In Paul's time, that was, fam- that was normal. As, as a rabbi would teach, people would ask him questions. Sometimes a question of clarification, sometimes a question of challenge. That was a part of their worship service, was the entering of a dialogue with the rabbi or whoever was teaching. Now imagine you're in a church and you've got this kind of a dialogue going, but you've got people who have no knowledge of Scripture. They didn't go to Jewish school or, or you know, the, the Torah school. They weren't taught. They were at home learning how to take care of house. But now they've been liberated through the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've come to faith. They're made a member of the body of Christ, and they want to learn. And they've been set free to learn, and so they're in church with you, and they have so many questions. And let's be honest. Sometimes there are good, honest, strong questions that encourage and help it. And sometimes there are questions where you don't know how to answer. And the question is going to take you off into a distant lands. And it's, it's not germane to the issue. Now, that question means something to the person who's asking, but not to anybody else. And it can disrupt things. That is what Paul's dealing with. Women are to keep, not, not that they can't ever talk, but in general, he's encouraging them that the women should keep quiet in the church that they are not permitted to speak but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. Now this is, what is Paul doing here? He's saying, men, it's your responsibility to make sure that your wife learns. It's your responsibility that if she has questions about Scripture, if she has questions about some teaching from church today, you better be paying attention so that you can answer her questions when we get home. That she should ask you. And you should teach her an instructor. Paul is giving them a way to instruct the ones who are not able to keep up in the conversation that is at hand. That's what he's really getting at. Not that it is improper at all times. If we had a, a society today where it was both men and women who had no education, we might have a situation where maybe some men need to be quiet while they're in the big group until we get to the small group and then we can talk and ask questions. We live in a society today where women are vastly more educated than men for the most part. You look at the, the numbers these days, more girls are going to college, more girls are getting their uh, ladies, I guess. I guess it's uh, improper of me. I should be canceled any minute now for calling them girls. Women, and, and again, I am, I am I'm assuming their identity, and I apologize, but it's just the way I am. But women are overwhelmingly higher educated than men as we are going on in this world. 
Should the church be the place where educated, intelligent women are told, no, we got to treat you like a first century woman when you didn't have any education? That's the way you need to be treated today. What we see in Scripture is that there's this change going on throughout. If you start from the very beginning and go all the way through, the Levitical law gives way to the gospel of grace. And here, Paul, he's not telling women need to be quiet and keep their place. What he's saying is, is for the order of their worship service there in Corinth, that the women should wait and ask their questions at home. And far from treating them as second-class citizens, what he's really doing is trying to create a way that they can grow and learn that is most uh, capable for everybody. That is edifying for the whole church. And, and he puts it on the husbands. You guys, your wife can come and ask you, and you better teach her. You can't just tell her it's none of your business. Don't worry about it. You're just a woman. You don't understand. That wasn't an acceptable answer. Let them ask at home. Let them ask of their own husbands, which is a radical idea. We don't accept it as radical. We don't recognize how radical it was. But in the first century, Paul talking to the church, that was a radical idea. And so Paul is not uh, creating a timeless structure that we are supposed to try to fit ourselves into even though the world moves on and changes. He was actually giving them a way to set the women free, to help them to grow and to learn. And that's, that's what we see through Scripture. The evidence of Scripture is that God sets free. I think one of the reasons why I, I've changed my tune on, on women teaching and leading is probably ever since I be, started teaching and leading. And I see, how, I see how pathetic I am. I see how pitiful at times I am. I see how empty some things are in my life. And I think there is nothing special going on here that would preclude a woman doing the same. It's God's grace. It's God's gift. It's God's calling. And if God is called and he is gifted, who are we to say no? You need to get into this little box. This is your box. Only children and other women, you, you can do that. You're allowed to teach other, children, or other women and children. You, get in that box. Some people are called to teach children. Some people are gifted to teach children. Sometimes it's men. But what God does is he sets us free. He gives us Jesus Christ. He died on the cross that we might live, that we might be set free. None of us has anything that we have based on the fact that we were born a certain way. We have been graced maybe to be put in a family that gives us the gospel. But everything we have, our faith, our gifting, our abilities, that is a gift from God. And that's what I focus on. That's what I hope we as a church focus on. Now, obviously, we as a church, we can get together and say, no, we disagree with this. Make a motion in a ministry conference and vote that way, and we can say this is the way we're going to be as a church. We have that right. We have that freedom. I believe we should focus on the Holy Spirit's guidance, not just, not just for women, for men too. Has the Holy Spirit called a person? Has the Holy Spirit gifted a person? If the Holy Spirit calls and the Holy Spirit gifts, 
the best thing we can do is agree with the Holy Spirit. I think the worst thing we can do is say, no, Holy Spirit, you got it wrong on this one. Because we see the outside of this person. We know what the outside of this person is. The outside of this person, this is a woman. So obviously, Holy Spirit, you are wrong. But instead, we should look at the inside like he does. Has he given them the calling? Has he given them the gifting? Has he empowered them to serve? I think that's what really matters. Matters in our lives, too. How has God called you? How has he gifted you? How has he equipped you to serve? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the grace that you have given us to be your children. That you have called us through Jesus Christ. That, that it wasn't anything that we did. It wasn't how good we are or how pretty we are or how handsome or how nice. Oftentimes it was in spite of just how far we fall from you. But you called us all the same and you've given us your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to look on the heart. Not to judge by the external, a person's education, a a person's upbringing or pedigree or even their sex. But is this a person God has called? Is this a person God has guided? Is this a person God has gifted? Father, forgive us for the times that we make the judgments. Help us to, to extend to one another the same grace we give ourselves. And we pray, Lord, that our trust and our hope would ultimately be in the work that you're doing through your Son, through your Holy Spirit in our lives. We ask and pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen.